You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. So we come to our last week in the gospel series, The Gospel, It's a Life Changer. We looked at the message of the gospel. We learned that the royal message of the gospel is that the, the King and Savior Jesus has come to save us from our sins and to be our King. Then we looked at being messengers of the gospel, being that, those who are to proclaim that message to the world in which we live. Last week, we looked at the motivation of the gospel, which is grace. It's all of grace. It's God was moved in his grace through his holiness and love to want to save us, to want to redeem us, to want us to renew us. And today, we'll look at the impact of the gospel. Uh, we want to see how this gospel makes an impact in our lives. And our scripture this morning is found in Romans 6. But before uh, Melissa comes to read that passage, uh, N.T. Wright powerfully shares in his Roman commentary about the gospel impact. He says this, Romans 6 shines a bright spotlight on the dangerous half-truth, currently fashionable, that God accepts us as we are. Will God's acceptance do as, do as a complete grounding of Christian ethics? Epithically not. God grace, God, grace reaches where humans are and accepts them as they are because anything less would result in nobody being saved. Justification is by grace alone through faith alone. But grace is always transformative. God accepts us where we are because God does not intend to leave us where we are. The radical inclusivity of the gospel must be matched by the radical exclusivity of Christian holiness. With that, Melissa, will you please? All right, if you're reading along in your pew Bible, it's page 942. And I haven't read this from this version yet, so if I stumble, no, my apologies to you. Romans chapter 6. Verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you 
also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for uh, this time that we can gather around your word. Father, thank you so much for this gospel that changes us, that renews us. So, Father, we pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that we would be encouraged, that we would be uh, strengthened, that we would be um, excited about what you have done for us in, in this gospel that you brought to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll never forget the experience when I was in London, England, uh, the summer after I graduated from uh, college. I was there on, with a mission organization, Operation Mobilization, and our goal was to bring the gospel to a, a predominantly Orthodox Jewish community. But sometimes we had the opportunity to, to do other things, and so this one, I think it was a Saturday, we decided to go to the, to the tube, one of the tubes in London, to pass out tracks. And so as we were doing that, I remember uh, one guy came to me. He was probably somewhat drunk, probably living on the streets. But we began to talk, and we began to sit on the curb. And I began to share with him the gospel. I began to share with him the good news that Jesus has come to save you and me from our sins. And so he was like, yeah, I want to accept this. I want to do this. Let's, let's go for it. And, he's, and so we prayed there that, God would, uh, that he would uh, come to faith in that time. And so he wanted then to pass out the tracks with us. And so I was a little hesitant because, you know, he just came to Christian, you know, just knowing that he's somewhat um, drunk as he, as he was hearing that. And so, but I said, you know what, I'm still young too. So I said, okay, let's, let's, I'll, he began to pass out the tracks with us. Something happened. So when he was passing out tracks, people started to say negative things to him. People were refusing to take his tracks, and he began to cuss them out loudly. And so I was then again a face with the dilemma. Do I continue to let him pass out the tracks? Uh, because first of all, it's not becoming of a follower of Christ to kind of be yelling and screaming and cussing out people that you're trying to share the good news with. Or, well, you know, he's, he's new in his faith, and, you know, he doesn't know that, and he definitely needs to be discipled. And so I was faced with a question. What do I do? What should I do? Should I continue to let him do it or not, right? How does the gospel, how do my understanding of the gospel of grace, what, is it, what does that say to me in those moments? You have often heard that since I'm saved by grace, then I can live any way I want or desire. Have you not heard that before? Is that true? And if that's true, what does that say about the royal message of the gospel? I believe this passage helps us not only understand the grace that God has given us to believe the gospel, but the grace that he gives to us to be transformed by the gospel. The gospel makes impact in our lives. And the impact that I want us to draw out this morning from Romans 6 is that first impact is that we are dead to sin. The second impact is that we're given new life in Christ. 
And the third impact is that we have the freedom and power to fight sin. So look again at verses 1 to 4. It says, What then shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? No, by no means. How can we die to sin and still live in Christ, live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We are buried therefore with him by baptism to the death, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now Paul was likely responding to a question posed, by regularly, posed regularly to him by his Jewish opponents. They did not raise the question in that time so that they would have an excuse to sin, though people throughout the ages have wrongly interpreted it and applied God, Paul's gospel of grace to rationalize sin. No, Paul's opponent argued that his gospel, that Paul's gospel must be wrong since in their opinion it led people to continue to sin. So in Paul in verse 1 shows otherwise that their interpretation of his gospel is wrong. And he, then he begins to argue in verse 2 why that, that is wrong. And he says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? What, is he, what, what he's saying is this that the gospel does not lead us to, to more sin since those who belong to Christ have died to sin. Then in verse 3, we see that he explains how we have died to sin, that we've been baptized into Christ. Christians died to sin when they were baptized into Christ. Now, Paul does not argue that baptism magically destroys the power of sin. Baptism, as we know, is an outward physical symbol of an inward spiritual conversion of Christians. I like what one has said. He said, what is being described here in this passage is a spiritual reality of the deepest import. It's not a ceremony or even the sacrament. The metaphor of baptism is clearly used in a relational sense elsewhere, as in the case of the Israelites baptized into Moses by reason of crossing the Red Sea. And this is, this is important. As they did that, right, they became united to Moses as never before, recognizing him as their leader and their, their pen, dependence on him. That's what Paul is saying, that because of, of dying with Christ, and being in verse 4, being buried with Christ, it's a vivid picture of our union now with Jesus Christ. See, the importance of burial in this passage is that it attests to the reality of death. It, it expresses with finality the end of the old life governed by the relationship with the old man, Adam, where sin came into the world. But it also expresses the impossibility of a new life apart from divine action. You see, we have been incorporated. What is Paul saying is that we've been incorporated into Christ by the action of the Holy Spirit. That God who raised Jesus from the dead has likewise imparted life to Christians. And since that we're united to Christ, Christians now have the power over sin and to live in that newness of life. Death to sin is not something that we hope for or that we resolve upon the Christian. It is something that has already taken place. It has taken place through the work of Christ. Sin no longer defines us. See, in Christ, sin has been dealt with. Our identity is not in our sin, for it has been dealt with in Christ's death and resurrection. 
We have died to sin. And as verse 4 mentions also this newness of life. But not only have we died to sin, right? We have this new life in Christ. Verse 5 helps us to understand that that gracious impact in our lives. Look again at verses 5 through 11. It says, For we have been united with him in in, in, in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing as we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now we have died with Christ. We believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive in God in Christ Jesus. So we see that this, the, the impact, how this new life, the, the, the impact of the new life includes these, a resurrected life in verse 5 and 9, a life of, of a, a power of sin that broken in verse 6, set free from sin in verse 7, and alive in Christ in verse 8. Listen, not only have we died with Christ, we have been resurrected with Christ. Think about it. The same power that raised Christ from the dead now has raised us from the dead, in a sense. We're no longer dead to sin, but we're alive. We've been empowered to live this new life. We've been, yes, we've been born in the world as sinners with the result that our bodies were ruled by sin, as this passage talks of that. But we are now made alive. The old man, the old self, no longer identifies us. We've been crucified. That has been crucified. That has been put to death. In fact, the body of sin that Paul is referring to is the rule of sin, but without excluding the involvement of the personal self that lives through the body. You see, sin's rules through was broken. Sin's rules, sin's reign, sin's dominion was broken when, when Christians died with Christ, therefore no longer enslaved to sin. This happens for the Christian when we believe the gospel, when we come to faith. Paul does not say that Christians do not sin. Hear me. Instead, the tyranny, the dominion, the rule, the reign of sin has been defeated for them in the gospel. See, with our new now life in Christ, the normal pattern of the, for the Christian should be progressive growth and sanctification, growth in holiness, resulting in greater maturity and conformity to God's holiness. In fact, If we're growing in Christ, we should see more of our sin because we're seeing more of God's holiness and we see more of our need to deeply rest on the cross. There's a chart that I want to show you. It's called the cross chart. Can you see it? So you see the the vertical, the horizontal line is is the time of our life. And you see the, the, uh, the defining moment of our conversion. So as, as we grow in Christ, right, we more and more see that we become more and more aware of God's holiness. But at the same time, we see more and more aware of, God's, of our sin. We become more aware of our sinfulness, more aware of how deep our sin is, right? And it makes us, what do you notice about the cross? It gets bigger. Because we know how gracious God is, God is and, and, and what he's done for us, right? 
the cross bridges that gap. The more that we grow, the more we appreciate and want to live through grace because of what he has done for us. In fact, Paul ends this section in verses 10 and 11, reminding us that Jesus died because he took sin upon himself. And his resurrection demonstrates that he has defeated both sin and death. Being sent, dead to sin means dead to, to the pervasive love for and ruling power of sin. Friends, we must preach this to our hearts every day. We have a new life in Christ, and the mastery of sin has been broken in our lives. That has been broken. So whenever you are wrestling sin, whatever sin we are wrestling with, and we wrestle with a lot of different types of sins, remember, as you're wrestling with the behavior of anger, there's something deeper going on, whatever idols that you're wrestling with, Christ has dealt with that. God, Christ has defeated that. And since we are in union with Christ, consider that that sin is being dealt with. And so it is inviting us to go to God, to run to God for help, to help us to see that bigger view of the cross, to help us to understand that this cross is gracious to us, to help us in our time of need as we wrestle with particular sins in our lives. Think of those sins that you daily deal with. Remember that Christ has nailed them to the cross. Now, Paul is very realistic in knowing human nature and our struggle with sin. So in verses 12 through 14, he, he, he describes that. What does he say? And here we see the freedom and power to fight sin. It says, sin, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul is reminding us, Christians, that we have the power and freedom to fight sin. Paul shows the tension between what God has already accomplished for us in the gospel and the responsibility of Christians to grow in our union with him. Christians are still tempted by desires to sin and must remember this new life he has given us so that these desires do not gain control again. Each day we must give ourselves afresh to God and the rest in his grace. Do you know that in 164 times in the New Testament, the New Testament describes us as in Christ, in him, and in the Lord. In Christ, in him, and in the Lord. What does that say to us? Right? You are in Christ. You are in him. You are in the Lord. He's reminding us that sin will not triumph over us in the lives of Christians in verse 14. There's this, uh, on Friday, we, our, my, the council organization I'm involved in celebrated 10 years. We had a guest speaker, uh, Steve King, who was a pastor at one point of Cherrydale Baptist Church, a pretty large Baptist church in the Arlington, Virginia area. Each week, each day, each morning, he wakes up and he, he's develop, he, reads, he goes through four praises. It's a fourfold praise. It talks about praise God for what he is, for who he is. Praise God for who you are in Christ. And he lists all these descriptions of who we are in Christ. 
Every morning before he gets up, he wants to know, he wants to, re, he wants to praise God for who he is and what he's doing. Then he praises God for what he's done for us in Christ. And then he prays for, praises God for the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to live out our call. Then he prays God for the armor he provides and puts on for us by faith. These are good reminders for us who are in Christ that we can, and we can empower ourselves by, by reminding us of who God is, who we are, what God is doing. If you want that list, I have made a bunch of copies, and you can, I, you can have them after, after the service. But it's a great reminder to know, okay, yes, I, I am a sinner, saint, and sufferer. I'm still on this journey with him. But the good news is that Christ has given me all the resources I need because I'm in union with him to, to really fight sin and to be free from sin. See, the truth is that I, we are only, we're not only free from the guilt of sin, which we talked about last week, but also from its reign in power. Throughout Romans 6, Paul is using regal, royal language. And in doing so, he is persifying sin as if it was a king sitting upon the throne. Where sin once sat on the throne of our hearts and our life, Romans 6 reminds us now, grace now sits. See, in Christ, sin no longer is my sovereign. It is no longer my master. I'm no longer slave to sin, having to obey it to obey its every enticements or command. I have been set free. See, our newfound freedom in Christ is one of the most liberating doctrines of the Christian faith. And we need to have a full view and understanding of this freedom. In our Reformed community, there has been quite an emphasis on the, on the freedom we have from Christ from the guilt of sin. And I'm thankful for that. But this is, that, that is an essential teaching in our gospel preaching, teaching and living. But let us, with equal force, remind one another that we have been set free from the reign and power of sin as well. This must be kept before us as well. So when we teach, when we preach, when we encourage one another in the full spectrum of our freedom from sin in Christ, I hope that it brings us joy and peace and godly living emerges from such knowledge. As we have seen in our last four series of the gospel, this royal message of the gospel, Christ's expansive love for his people in the world in which we live, made apparent by Jesus coming as our Savior and King, has a profound impact upon all who love him. And because we love him, we also love what he loves what, and whom he loves. Soon afterward, a commitment to Christ, David, a profoundly profane man in word and deed, wrote this. I love Jesus so much that now I can't stand it when people take his name in vain. He was a man who took the God's name in vain all the time. He says this, I, I can't stand it when people take his name in vain. I want them to know how good God is. See, when Jesus indwells our hearts in this new life, his heart becomes ours. Individuals who love him want to please him by loving what he loves. We delight to be his messengers to the lost, his hands to the needy, like we talked about with the blanket Monday, blanket, his voice for the oppressed, stewards of his creation. We rejoice that Christ's family extends beyond human boundaries of race and region and class and cultural culture, and we delight to love accordingly. And as we express Christ's love in us, we are 
we who are once in need ourselves ultimately discover a final aspect of Christ's salvation. We have a divine purpose. We have been rescued from empty lives as well as from, as well as from sinful ones. Jesus makes the broken, makes you and I, useful. Not only are lives impacted, but we can now impact the lives of others. See, Jesus has not done this. Jesus was not done with the man whose failures placed him in the jail cell next to David. As that man shared his faith with David, a man of another race, both knew Christ's love and became spiritual brothers for eternity. Time again and again, David, a developmentally disabled brother in Christ, has been aided in prison by men whose race or background would have separated them in ordinary society. And as David has learned of a love greater than his prejudices, he's become an instrument of Christ's love as well. You see, this simple friendship of trust with those unlike himself inaugurates within prison walls the glory of eternal brotherhood and sisterhood in heaven. And this brings me to the impact the gospel has in our lives corporately. We participate in Christ's transforming purposes as individuals, but also as gathered people. Through the church, we proclaim the royal announcement of the gospel in word and deed to Christ, that, so that Christ's rule spreads from our heart to the hearts across our nations. His ultimate kingdom is a story the scriptures unfold from the very beginning pages, from Genesis throughout to Revelation is a story of God's royal announcement, announcement that he has come to redeem a people for himself. Our God would not leave a hurting creation in pain. Despite the betrayal that led to the brokenness of this world and its, and its inhabitants, God has never, has never abandoned us. He redeems and trans people, transforms people so that they will know the extent of his grace. Salvation he brings is both for and through sinners like you and me. So in the church, we gather together to praise him for his goodness, to encourage one another in living for him, and to help others understand and experience his transforming grace. We need one another to then grow together. See, the royal message of the gospel is for us and includes us and enfolds us in a larger embrace. We have a purpose beyond ourselves and it's fulfilling it with others, we celebrate our corporate identity with the body of Christ. Collectively, he grants us fulfillment and participation in furthering of his kingdom that transforms all things for his glory. And as we live in community, encouraging and instructing and strengthening and forgiving one another, we then become transformative salt and light in a world in which we live. For the great privilege of participation in Christ's transforming work, we have been saved. And for this great purpose, we honor our King and reflect His grace in every dimension of our lives, our relationships, our occupations, our recreations, and our worship. We keep no aspect of our lives from reflecting His glory as He extends His reign over the whole of life. Sacred and secular distinctions cannot be used to isolate the concerns of Christ 
from the spear of life. He is the Lord of everything. He has come to extend his gracious reign over every aspect of our lives. He saves us in order to place his claim on us. That is the royal message of the gospel. Not only to redeem us, but to be our king, to reign over us. As we find our greatest satisfaction in dedicating every aspect of our lives to him, he delights to use us for external purposes and to redeem the world through our individual but as well as corporate efforts. When the gospel writers declared the royal announcement of the gospel, it was typically with the declaration that the Lord of all had come. No joy could accompany such an announcement if it's marked only the beginning of a despotic rule. However, if the king has come to save sinners and their salvation includes a renewed heart and an empowered life and a transformed world, then this purpose and theirs is truly good news. This news is so good that the angels long for it. And we who love him, who also provides the gospel, also cherish its announcement. Whether we have known the imprisonment of body, mind, habit, guilt, relationship, or circumstance, Jesus Christ has come to save us eternally from it all and to give us a new life to reflect his glory and grace. And this, friends, this is the greatest news. This is the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, I am thankful for the gospel. I'm thankful that in your plan, Lord God, that you had a desire to save a people like us. People who would normally would care less about pursuing you, God, who thought nothing of you, God, yet, yet, God, you had us in mind from the beginning of time to bring us into a relationship with yourself through Jesus Christ. And Father, we have this great news, this great immoral, royal message that not only says that, that you have come to save us, but you have come to reign over us, and it's all of grace. Father, we know that this grace, this gospel, has come to impact us in many ways. Lord, we know that we still struggle with sin in our lives, yet the good news is that that sin has been dealt with. It, does not, it no longer reigns over us. Lord, you are the one who now reigns over us in our life. Help us by your grace to fight the fight, to live in that freedom, to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ, that in Christ we are righteous in your sight. In Christ we can live in holiness, that we can live righteously. We can be for goodness because of that goodness that we received in Christ, that we can be the hands and feet of the Lord and where we serve. Oh, Father, continue to help us to know not only do we need you in this journey, we need one another to grow in this grace, to understand this gospel, to let not sin reign over us, but to allow you more and more to reign over us. Do that work of grace, I pray, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this time. And as we continue to worship you, help us to continue to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is that author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.